This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Now, because of the time change, and we're only four hours away uh, from New York over the next three weeks, Mr. Farrow is otherwise engaged, as a result of which, for the next three weeks, you've just got me. But we have lined up an all-star cast of guests over the next three weeks. It's going to be a cracking set of shows. You overcompensate in these sort of situations. Uh, I'll certainly miss Mr Farrow, but let's begin with our top story. Theresa May, the British Prime Minister's government, uh, has declared that Brexit talks with the European Union are deadlocked. Speaking today, the Eurogroup uh, members say they still have hope for a Brexit deal, but they're prepared for any possible outcome. All countries uh, in the European Union and also at the uh, European Union level are making arrangements in order to deal with the no-deal uh, scenario, which, again, uh, I must stress that uh, we want to avoid very much. Anyone in Europe prepared for both a Brexit with an agreement and uh, a Brexit with no deal, but the better choice would be to have uh, a support from the British Parliament to the agreement. I think uh, still it's uh, clear that it's much uh, better to uh, reach an agreement. It's going to be much less destructive for both sides. Uh, That was the Eurogroup president, followed by the German finance minister, followed by the EU commissioner speaking uh, in Brussels. Joining us now to discuss all this, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and Alistair McKay, director uh, director of investment at the investment management firm Fern Wealth. Um, Marcus, let me start with you. Uh, Tomorrow's vote apparently is going to go ahead. The sense seems to be that Theresa May is going to lose big. What then? Well, is it? Because, as you may or may not be following, she could be going to Strasbourg uh, or not. I mean, there's lots of excitement still to come. Uh, It's like James Brown being dragged back on stage. I mean, will they or won't they offer something? It's only, the Irish, it's only the Irish that are saying that she's going. Nobody quite knows whether she is or not. Merkel said there was something very important. Um, and uh, indeed, there is a chat that she may or may not go to, to uh, see Juncker. Um, there definitely seem to be delays to the various different um, addresses and, and to the House of Commons. So, um, Stephen Barclay, the Brexit secretary, has sort of been delayed by three hours. And he may indeed speak instead of May. So... It does seem that something's in the air, so it's not all lost just yet. But uh, certainly if nothing turns up, then I think we're looking at a 40-plus defeat. But if something does turn up, uh, maybe we get the biggest surprise of the lot and she gets something through. But, I mean, you know, it, it's, this, is, this is very uh, <laughs> up in the air, literally. Up in the air. Um, Al, how will, I, how will markets react if, if Theresa May loses tomorrow? Will the pound go up or down. I guess the reason I'm asking this question is is kind of what's already in the price. The pound has had a, a rapid ascent over the last few months, certainly against the euro. Is the expectation that a delay is now baked in kind of the centre centre of the kind of distribution of outcomes? Um, evening, guys. I, look, I think most of the trips that we've seen Theresa May make over to mainland Europe have resulted in her bringing back not a lot. 
um, if anything. Um, and I don't think there's a, a huge amount of uh, expectation that she's going to bring back some, some pull some rabbit out the hat, as it were. If that materialises, then I think all bets are off and we can see a, a sizable uh, shift in things. Also, when we look at sterling, I think a, a fair amount of, um, of the, uh, the fact that we're going to see an extension is baked into sterling strength at the moment. Um, and it's, you know, it's in the recent past, it's certainly a, the, the strongest ebb that it's been. Um, I think if we were to find that, that the chances of an extension suddenly get pulled from, from beneath us, um, I think we, we'd see some pretty sizable moves in, in the market. But I think most people, certainly as a European watching events uh, go on in, in the UK, I'm not expecting a huge amount to materialise in the next 24 hours as far as new new deal negotiations are concerned. Okay, so Marcus, if we don't get any kind of rabbit from hat um, and we end up with, with Theresa May losing, what will the EU demand in return for a Brexit extension? Um, well, we've already had the flags of that. Look, so much of this is, is just sort of teeing up, which, which is, uh, I'm, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I'm expecting someone to come out of something here. because You're expecting a rabbit. Well, I just think a wabbit is uh, in, in sight just because there are so many sort of noises, the country and, 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 it, and the way it's been played out. I mean, as you said, we only heard it from the Irish, but the Irish are the most important people to hear it from if there is going to be any form of, uh, of said long, long-eared rodent. Um, but nonetheless, uh, if she doesn't get it, then clearly we are already being prepped that there's no rebate. That equates to a 13.5 billion um, sort of number. Uh, so at least a, a billion pounds per month, rather than the sort of eight to nine we get. So the they'll, basically, they'll charge us for it. They'll basically charge more us, than we are yeah. currently paying but, because but we kind of on, on our kind of almost a pro rata basis. It's kind of pay to play. Yeah, uh, you want to be in for another three or four months. This is what it's going to cost yeah. you. And then there are all the rest of it that comes with the stuff. So no representation, and then you know when you want to talk about X, Y, and Z, be it fishing rights, Gibraltar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I mean, this is not going to be made easier, nor should it, really, quite quite perplexed. I can't blame the Europeans if, we, if we're not going to have the gumption to draw a line on it and or accept what's been given here, then then why should they make this uh, any easier? You know, this is not how it's been played. They played it very, very skillfully so far. And um, in, in essence, it's it's there to learn, learn, it's a lesson for precedent for everyone else. Or encourage the alt, I think, as they say in Dagenham. <laughs> Um, Al, just in terms of the uncertainty, what will I, what would a three or four month um, extension do in terms of uncertainty? Well, it drags on the whole uh, situation. Um, again, I, I sit here and rather cynically um, wonder exactly what will materialise in the next three months that hasn't been able to materialise in the last two and a half odd years. Um, it, it, it hangs over the UK economy again, and it's, it's you know it it pushes out even further. I guess you know um, uh, business model planning and things like that, and certainly from from the likes of ourselves as wealth managers over here in Europe, uh, we, we're frequently asked you know are we excited or is now the time to, to start investing in in the UK, uh, and it will probably just push our timeline further down the road to say no, well, let's just wait and see what actually does materialise, um, and I think that's uncertainty. Markets hate it. Um, it's not going to do it any favours from that from that point of view. Let's talk about political uncertainty. How should I handicap the possibility, Marcus, of a general election? Well, and there is some good odds checker which will show you all the various different options for you know what a new deal is and, and what a general election is. And I haven't got that to hand at the moment, but um, certainly, if you look at May's game plan here, 
if she is forced down the route of having to honour this vote tomorrow, loses it, then has to honour the vote on the 13th, which is essentially therefore ruling out a no deal, therefore which takes her whole, um, any form of ability to, to, to get the EU to, to compromise uh, away. And then indeed, then she it then goes to the 14th and, and they decide to uh, opt for a delay, which then completely puts it in the hand of the EU. What's her option then? And that may well be to call a general election. Um, if she's going to go down, she might as well go down in flames. Um, so there is a possibility. Equally, uh, it's almost certain that if those scenarios happen, that there will be a revolt in cabinet. I don't think she's got the confidence of her cabinet at the moment. Um, certainly if she loses this vote or, or, or indeed hands the, ex- the executive power across to the legislature. So in that sense, um, you get a, a Tory election campaign. Does that then in turn prompt a, a, another general election? It's the, the possibility will definitely rise, almost certainly. Um, so when you took at the uh, the average implied probability of a second referendum, uh, 29% at the moment, um, you could do all this on your Bloomberg. Uh, the odds checker function is there. Um, certainly worth taking a look at. Uh, when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation, take a look at where this is going to take us next and what's happening with the Eurozone as well. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Um, John Farrow is, because of the four-hour time gap, uh, doing something else right now. So you're just going to have to me for the next three weeks. But uh, let me tell you what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, We are up by 1.22% on the S&P 500, but only up by around four-tenths of 1% on the Dow. Why is the Dow underperforming today? Pretty straightforward, really. It's a price average, and that means that the company with the highest price wakes up, makes up the biggest uh, chunk of the Dow, and that is Boeing. And today it's having a pretty bad day as a result of what happened in Ethiopia uh, over the weekend with the crash. Let's turn our attention back to the data that we are watching so carefully. German industrial production uh, down in January. These temporary factors uh, that we continue to see around the world uh, continuing to manifest themselves in the German data, like the car industry uh, being hit. But you've also got the uh, the Chinese import story, and there's a very strong correlation between uh, what happens in China and the German IP data. Output decline 0.8, missing economist forecasts for a 0.5 gain, uh, and was down 3.3% on the year. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Alice McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fernwell, still with us. Al, let me start with you. Um, did Mario Draghi and the ECB fix anything last week? Not, not meaningfully. No, um, I, I think uh, uh, targeted LTROs obviously is, is going to help liquidity issues, but that in itself hasn't uh, shown a, a real signs of, of being what um, what's needed, the medicine required uh, for the EU. I think when it comes to the German data, uh, you know, they they avoided by a hair's breadth um, going into recession uh, in the tail end of last year by by having a flat um, a quarter. Uh, along with a shrinking quarter, so uh, you know, avoiding that double double dot dip, as it were. Um, I think if we're trying to look optimistically, there, there is little signs, little flutters of improving signs as far as the, the car uh, manufacturing or car production data is concerned uh, out of the Germans. So that does hint towards things maybe just edging in the right direction. But you know, unemployment still remains at record lows, and, and growth still looking very solid. Um, but uh, targeted LTROs on their own are not enough to um, to really shift things around. 
Marcus, if Germany wants to, to fix its economy, presumably it's just got to spend some money. Yes, which it has no interest in doing. Um, I don't see many signs of uh, growth, unfortunately, in Europe, and particularly, uh, you know, be it Italy or Germany, there are, whatever small signs you see, there are very small and uh, really not something to get too optimistic about. I think, well, I, as I've written um, repeatedly, the ECB have massively dropped the ball here. Uh, the forward guidance by a quarter is, is laughable. And these Teltros are, are a real worrying sign because they're effectively a fiscal tightening, a financial conditions tightening, pardon me. Um, there's, a, the, there's a gap between the June and September um, when the, the previous lot effectively become much more expensive for banks and when the next lot start. Uh, they're only two years and they're going to be 40 basis points more expensive for banks, which, which rules out pretty much all but the uh, weaker Italian and possibly one or two of the Spanish banks. Uh, and with the eligibility on the loan basis, uh, that means probably only about 40 to 50 a billion in total will, will be taken up if it, if it does stand as it currently looks like it will. That is not going to do anything for European economy. It's going to create a credit crunch over the summer. ECB have dropped ball. Um, if ECB have dropped the ball, what needs to happen next? Like in all seriousness, I, I came into this kind of saying, if Germany wants growth, it needs to spend some money. The, the ECB is now in a position where I'm not sure it's capable of e- e- even stabilising the European economy but it is certainly not capable of generating growth. So there needs to be another plan now. Where does that come from? Well, I mean, as, you, as you're as alluding to, it should be a fiscal plan, and you will have to feel very sorry for uh, Mayor Draghi because uh, he's the only person trying to keep the lights on in Europe for the last eight years, and, and no one's been listening to him. And when he goes in, in October, he'll be sorely missed. Um, they can't even sort out who's going to replace him or someone with a, with a, anyway with a, with a coherent strategy. Uh, doesn't seem to be on it obviously popping up. So, you know, what is going to happen? I mean, Germany will be fine. Uh, you know, as Al's alluding to, they, they, their economy will bounce back, the, the car making will bounce back, but the rest of the economy, particularly the weak spots of Italy, etc., will not. And uh, we've got to talk about the banks as well. We'll do that next. Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank outperforming today. Uh, is that down to speculation that we are about to get merger news? The broader banking sector was higher today. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable. It is 18 minutes past five in the city of London. Let's talk about the German banking sector. Um, Big moves today in banks across Europe, but we also saw very big moves in terms of two German banks, Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank. The, The speculation, the chatter is that the merger between these two institutions is is rapidly uh, becoming a piece of news that we can expect, possibly as, as soon as this week. I, this is just chatter. There's nothing to kind of substantiate this. Uh, but certainly, that is how the mood music is running at the moment. Um, how would it work? We don't know. What would be the model? We don't know. There are various options on the table. But Bloomberg has learned that Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Seving has given up kind of his resistance to doing a deal this year. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining me in the studio. Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management for Firm Wealth, uh, joining us from Switzerland. Marcus, um, does one plus one make two or does one plus one make three? Kind of, how does it makes one and a half at best. Yeah. Probably 0.9. Um, I think the fact that they've both got level three assets, which is the stuff they can't even, not even begin to mark to market, uh, uh, just the whole situation of, of putting together, as we saw, the Japanese banking industry 
uh, back a few decades, are ramming through to two unhappy ships to try and create um, some form of national champion still is um, going to be very testing on all the state aid rules, very testing of the ECB and uh, just the whole credibility indeed of, of what the European uh, Banking Union is supposed to be about. Um, but it has the only thing that can realistically save Deutsche Bank from itself. And um, Comets Bank is, is optically marginally less ill but uh, as we've, we've heard today on various different mark-to-mark measures on, on sovereign bonds, you know, it's got problems of its own, which are um, deep. And, um, you know, the, the German banking industry is not a healthy one. Uh, domestically, it is overbanked. Internationally, particularly in investment banking, um, Deutsche Bank can't seem to do right for doing wrong in the sense that its U.S. business, which spent many, many years and, and prodigious amounts of money trying to break into, is is unraveling. It seems, and they want to close it, and that's really the only way out. They can they can get the um, the real forms of uh, of savings, which make it optically um, just on cost cutting. But you know, carry on cutting costs doesn't make you make profits, and that's the real fundamental problem here. Yep, hard to hard to generate growth that way. Alice, does this deal make sense to you? Um, from a business point of view, no, it makes no sense at all. But do I think it's going to go ahead? Yeah, there's a fighting chance. When we look at the uh, German banking sector, you know, certainly from a retail point of view, about 50% of the business out there is for small regional banks. Then you've got, say, 20 25%, which is the sort of cooperative-type banks. And then the balance is the sort of 20 25%, which is the independence, the, the likes of Commerce and Deutsche Bank. The problem is that the regionals and the cooperatives do a great job for small and medium-sized businesses in Germany. But when it comes to the big, massive inter- international companies, they need a, a sort of global champion, as, as Marcus was alluding to there. And that's where Deutsche Bank comes in. Merging the two together gives you, you know, Europe's second biggest bank. And from a, a sort of um, a, a kudos point of view, I guess, it gives you a bigger entity. Um, to work with. But in, in reality, it's certainly not going to improve the, the, the profitability uh, of these companies. And Deutsche Bank has struggled to tap into the U.S. Uh, institute investment market um, through a, a number of different uh, reasons, troubles with regulators and the likes have played their part. And the rest of the globe, quite frankly, isn't offering the same sort of profit margins that the U.S. market does. Um, so, in summary, I don't think it's a great idea for the two companies, but I think there's every chance it'll it'll materialise. In fact, the Deutsche Bank CEO has uh, effectively uh, thrown in the towel in battling against it. Gives you an idea of the pressures he's feeling politically, and I guess the likes of Cerberus as well, the U.S. private equity firm, are, are adding uh, adding their uh, tuppence worth into the public sentiment too. Marcus, what I don't understand is the German German government's involvement in all of this. I kind of, <laughs> why does the German government care if a large German corporate has an issue with kind of where it raises money? They have the option. These these are global companies. They can raise money. They can deal with their banks pretty much wherever they want. Why do they need Deutsche Bank? Why I, the the Mittelstand is kind of where the jobs are created. That is a a sector that is reasonably well covered. Why does the German why does the why does the German government care about Deutsche Bank in the way that it does, other than the name? Well, I mean, it is in the name, as indeed Comets Bank is in its name as well. I mean, they, Deutsche Bank has been a very proud institution and really, at one stage, almost dominated European banking. Obviously, it's had a lot of, and I won't go into the details, a, a sorry past in recent years. But you know that that is where Germany, being the preeminent um, superpower, uh, you could call it in Europe, needs to have a, a bank worthy of of that accolade, and that's why 
that for them it makes sense to have. But what? It's okay. Why? You've got BNP and Sockgen and, and and to a lesser degree a couple of the French banks which are big there, and uh, dominate to a certain extent the domestic market. But you know, Deutsche Bank is 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 not there to compete from the middle stance quite so much. Is yeah. is to try and get you know the Chinese business into Germany and and vice versa. There is there is a huge amount that Deutsche Bank spread globally can do for German export, which and it's an export machine. So that's why it needs a German representative in all parts of the world and bring it back into the it, it back into the into the home country. But if it's not doing a good job of that, does well, merging it with Commerce Bank kind of fix that? If, if that's the objective... It, it's not so much it's doing a bad job at that bit, it's doing a, uh, done a terribly bad job at other bits which have come into... It's the legacy stuff which is leaving it with a vast derivative, uh, you know, and as I said, level three assets which are, you know, it, it's legacy of the crisis which has never managed to sort it out. Uh, plus an overextended investment banking machine which can't make money at the moment because it's it's not one, you know, feast or foul and one, and one clear market. So, so, Al, does it need to be a, a German solution to this, why can't it merge with Unicredit? Wouldn't that be a better idea? I, Germany, I, we theoretically there is a banking union here. Does nobody want to play with with Deutsche Bank? Therefore, Commerzbank Bank is the only option. Uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing whether you you, you know, you're the German regulators or German, German finance arm, and you're going. I've got two problems at the moment. We merged them together. At least I've only got one problem that I need to tackle. It's worth pointing out as well that a merger, if if which had say paid a 25% 30% premium on Commerce Bank stock, that would have a material effect on their core financial ratios as well. So this is not an easy one to solve. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Alice McKay joining us from Fern Wealth. Marcus Ashworth joining us from Bloomberg Opinion. Up next, we're going to come back to the Boeing story, the Ethiopian crash over the weekend having material impact on Boeing's share price. We'll try to figure out what we know and what we don't know. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is 5.30 in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Quick update on where the markets are. Stateside, 27.78 is the level for the S&P 500. It is up by 1.31%. It is significantly outperforming uh, the Dow. Why is it significantly outperforming the Dow? Like the two usually go reasonably hand in hand. The Dow is only up by six-tenths of 1%. Boeing is the reason for that. The Dow is constructed in a slightly odd way. Basically, if you've got the highest price, you get the biggest weighting, which sounds pretty peculiar when you think about it. Anyway, Boeing's got a pretty high price, 395 bucks at the moment, uh, but it is down by 6.48%, as a result of which uh, it is knocking many, many points uh, off the Dow, uh, which uh, certainly is uh, being felt today in terms of the way that it is performing. Boeing is knocking 186 points off the Dow. Just in terms of kind of give you a bit of context around that, Apple, 3M, Coca-Cola, the biggest percentage gainers are adding 40, 36 and 7. So basically between the, you've got to kind of add up the top 10 gainers to get to the kind of points gain that Boeing is knocking off. So it's having a really massive effect. Um, The reason for this obviously is that pressure is escalating on Boeing after Sunday's crash uh, of that Ethiopian Airlines uh, 737 MAX 8. Uh, Indonesia joining Ethiopia and China in granting its fleets uh, of the aircraft. This is the second deadly crash of a 737 MAX 8 within five months. All 157 people on board were killed. Meanwhile, searchers have found the flight data and the cockpit recorders from the aircraft. 
Joining us now to discuss this, Ben Katz, uh, Bloomberg Aerospace and Aviation reporter. What do we know at this point, Ben? Like you say, we know that the, the black box has been recovered. Um, we're still waiting to hear from the FAA, from uh, EASA, which is the European regulators. Um, we're starting to hear you know, bits and pieces coming in from different airlines around the world, and that's really what we're monitoring as well. Um, you know, trying to keep a focus on you know, what level of precaution various airlines are taking. Uh, one of the first steps we saw, um, I think it was uh, very early this morning, was China uh, deciding to ground the entire fleet of 737 MAX um, jets that, that fly in China. It's almost 100 planes. Um, there was actually a, 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 quite a, a descriptive a GIF or image on a, on Twitter I saw. Uh, it was a flight radar comparison between the flights that were going over uh, Sunday evening versus uh, what they were a week ago. And you can just see, you know, a complete, dis, you know, dis- disposal of of all of those aircraft um, and and yeah and I mean that that I think sent a few shockwaves to the industry and we've got you know Ethiopia is obviously grounded Indonesia has grounded um, it, you know following the the Lion Air crash in October um, even the likes of British Airways franchisee um, Comair in in South Africa um, that has decided to ground um, at the same time we've got a lot of airlines coming out and saying you know what this is a safe aircraft we've been operating it we've got total faith in it um, so it's interesting to see how the different airlines are reacting to it. The, the comparison that is being made is with the with the Lion crash, which happened back in October, um, around five months ago. And what we've learned subsequent to that is that one of the reasons behind that crash may have been this anti-stall software that was installed on the aircraft, and and that the crew didn't know how to or couldn't somehow deal with that anti-stall software, and as a result of which, struggle to control the aircraft. Are there similarities between, similarities between that crash and this crash? There, without question. I mean, the... The Lion Air crash back in back in October um, happened six minutes after it, it took off from the airport. Right, you had a similar scenario where the where the pilots reached out to the airport to request uh, a turnaround, um, and then obviously didn't have enough time or, or lost control of the aircraft. Um, there's definitely enough data to show that there may be a connection. A lot of the people I'm speaking to though are cautioning, and they're saying, "Listen, guys, you know most aircraft crashes happen." at takeoff or landing, you know, maybe this is a, a, a coincidence. This could be something completely unrelated. So this is the big thing. And I think that this is really the, 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 the crux of what the market is looking at. Because if it is related to the Lion Air crash, then you start wondering about culpability. You start wondering whether Boeing did enough after the Lion, the Lion Air crash uh, to prevent it happening again, or yeah. vice versa, whether Ethiopian did as requested, um, you know, by Boeing. Because what they did was they, they sent out an update to the training manual. Exactly. Effectively, this was this was a training solution designed to teach pilots how to deal w- with this with this sort of safety device that that effectively is is on the plane, the anti-stall software. So it's it's, and that's where, as you say, the crux. Of it, we don't know whether or not it was a it was a kind of Boeing not giving enough information out or not dealing with this maybe at a software level, or actually the pilots not getting their arms around and understanding what the implications of it were. But I would have thought anybody that flies. A seven three seven max eight. This kind of would this 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 would be top of mind. 
and especially, I mean, Ethiopian is is no joke airline. Ethiopian is is a, is a massive beast. They really they've been expanding rapidly. Um, the CEO is a, a Towaldi. Uh, he's a, I mean, he's a really really smart guy. Um, they're really transforming aviation uh, in Africa and and the reputation of African airlines. So you know they they're seen almost as a as an Emirates of of, of Africa. You know this isn't um, you know a state owned carrier carrier that's you know been you know battling with yep. on the verge of bankruptcy like you know my my home nation's carrier in South African Airways. You know this is a legitimate airline, um, and it's difficult to think that this airline would not follow the procedures that Boeing had issued. Yep. Um, but it's also potentially you know as you know inconceivable that Boeing didn't adequately address um, the situation after the Lion Air crash. So Airbus was up a little bit today, not by much, but it was up by by 1.3%. Some people suggesting that maybe airlines could switch. You're an operator of a 737 kind of fleet, you could switch to an Airbus A320 fleet. The problems with that are substantial, one of which you've got to get slots, and the second one is you've got to retrain your pilots. Delivery slots, production slots. De- de- yeah. Delivery slots, yeah. You've, you've got to be able to... And these aircraft are sold out for many years to come. Just kind of walk us through kind of... It's it's kind of a very twin track industry, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we're we're you know it's an industry that is entirely duopoly. You've got Boeing with the with the seven three seven Max, and then you've got Airbus with the A three twenty Neo. Um, both are bestsellers. Both have you know a huge part of, of of the market, and their aircraft are have been flying now for a few years. Um, the A three twenty Neo. The thing, the thing about the training, the training is really critical, and it is a major expense for an airline to come in and operate two different types of models. Because when it comes to maintenance, when it comes to you know your pilots and 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 you know a series of other things, it just makes sense for a lot of airlines to operate a single fleet. However, there are airlines that are big enough that operate both. For example, Lion Air. Lion Air has both Airbus A320 Neos on its order book as well as the 737 Max. So when Lion Air comes forward and says, you know what, we are seriously considering dropping our max order that's something to take seriously right because they can they can efficiently switch to an airbus fleet and at the moment as well that the cycle maybe after like many 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 years might be starting to roll over a little many, bit. Many, many, many years. So so maybe that will free up some slots as well. They could free up some slots, although I you know I caution that this is in the realm of of, of speculation, you know, um Airbus, don't forget. I mean, if we really play into this, into this, this, this query and this and this narrative, you know, there's also a question about whether Airbus's sales teams can even pull it off. I mean, Airbus is, hasn't booked. I think they booked maybe two or three aircraft sales in the first two months of the year, and those were for the A220, the Bombardier jet. Yeah. Airbus's is, is sales team is in a bit of disarray. They had three different sales chiefs last year. Um, you know, this is there's a lot of pressure on them to come forward um, and, and perform and start booking these orders. So it's definitely in, in a very interesting dynamic. Ben, thank you very much indeed. Ben Katz joining us from Bloomberg News uh, on the Ethiopian crash over the weekend. Um, as Ben said, the, uh, the the two black boxes, as they're called, um, they're not black, they are orange and brightly coloured, um, have been discovered. So we may get some news over the next few hours in terms of uh, early indications as to what, what happened here. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking to Luke Cowell about how the market's taken all this. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5.40 in the city of London. Uh, it's only four hours, the gap 
for the next three weeks because of daylight saving time between New York and London, which is kind of throwing the team off a little bit. So you're just going to have to bear with me, Guy Johnson, in London for the next three weeks. We've got some fantastic guests lined up. Let's talk about what's been going on, on the other side of the Atlantic. U.S. retail sales unexpectedly rose in January, lifted by an increase in purchases of building materials and discretionary spending. The report is welcome news after a raft of very weak December data, uh, as well as a sharp moderation in the pace of job growth in February. Um, still, the relatively strong retail sales report will probably not change expectations uh, for a slowdown in economic growth in the uh, the first quarter. And actually, the, the kind of indications are that the first quarter, uh, the February data, uh, may take a little bit of a knock as well. Catherine Greifeld, FX and Rates reporter, joining us now in New York. Uh, Luke Carwell, cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, with us as well. Luke, just before we get to, to the, the retail sales story, I just want to ask you about the Dow. Getting getting whacked today because of Boeing doesn't it just make a mockery of the Dow in your mind? Price weighted indexes in general just it makes it it makes a mockery out of all of them. They're not methodologically defensible, and I think you you kind of see that on days like today. Just you know, it doesn't make sense to have an index that is that small it's not and an index, price weighted. It's an average. Pardon? It's not even an index; it's an average, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So, but like, I mean, it's a it's yeah. it's a benchmark gauge, and you know, thirty. So you're barely clearing the law of large numbers. You're barely at the you know defensible level for portfolio allocation to have sufficient diversification. So you know, I I don't know. I've never got the Dow. I'm not a Dow fan. Not a fan of quoting in points. Not a fan of talking about it at all. So this is one of those days where, hey, uh, one one silver lining is we can at least talk about what represents a good gauge of uh you know the stock market and what doesn't. Yeah, and I think we've, as you say, shown that pretty conclusively today. Catherine, just talk to me about this retail sales number. I, you, do I need to put the two numbers together, the uh, the December and the January number? Is that a useful way of approaching this? I think so. I mean, if you look at this report, yes, January was better than expected. But I mean, December was even worse than expected. So I think you have to take uh, January's report in context of you know just how bad December was. But I mean, at the same time, there were potential seasonal factors, the partial government shutdown in the U.S. here. So, I mean, it's a pretty messy report. Uh, but I think, I mean, if anything, it sharpens the focus on the CPI print we get tomorrow. Absolutely. And what are we expecting there? Sure. So, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. We're expecting a pickup uh, from absolutely nothing in January, you know, speaking on a month over month basis. Uh, but you know, if you're trading bonds, if you're, you know, trading FX, you definitely care about this CPI report. Uh, you know, especially as we continue to have this debate about the Fed, whether we're truly at the pause yet or, you know, whether we have room for another hike here in twenty nineteen. Well Luke, that's the point, isn't it? This is this is kind of where the Fed's at. It's all about inflation now from the Fed's perspective. Yeah, I, I think there's there's kind of two ways to look at it. You can look at it as, you know, the the Fed thinks it was near thinks it got too close to neutral. And therefore, if you're close to neutral, realized inflation should take on a bigger weight in your decision-making process. That's that's one very defensible point of view. The other point of view is that the Fed just got scared because risk assets collapsed, and now they'll be they'll be less scared. But I, I think the inflation print uh, takes on more meaning for not only the the first track and what Catherine mentioned, but also just the idea that you have more and more Fed officials talking about you know average inflation targeting, inflation targeting, or of course the cycle, a price level targeting, things of that nature. And right now. Now nobody cares because inflation is low. But if inflation ever shows signs of picking up a bit, and the Fed keeps talking about these ideas that would essentially mean you know higher inflation break evens, 
potentially higher inflation premiums and uh, you know that translating through to the term premium that could be quite a shock to the bond market but for now nobody's going to care as long as inflation's low Catherine, what do you make of that? I, it, just very briefly, I, the, the Fed is banging on about this this average inflation story. The market kind of has this has this kind of reaction function built into it that inflation goes up. That's bad, but but we may need to delay that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of what Luke has just said. But I mean, what I'm really interested in this inflation story is what happens to the yield curve. Uh, you know, you've seen quite a bit of steepening. Depending on tomorrow's print, I mean, we could have a new thing to talk about here. That's, it has been the, the trade of, of late, certainly, hasn't it, this steepening curve. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about what we got for the rest of the week. It is a very busy week. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is 5.48, nearly 5.49 in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio and on all of your Bloomberg devices. Of course we are. Uh, Let me just give you a sense of what is going on for the rest of the week. So tomorrow, massive day for Brexit. Um, British lawmakers, British MPs voting on Theresa May's Brexit deal. Now, earlier on in the day, there was an expectation that she would lose and lose big. But the last couple of hours have generated a little bit of news on that. Theresa May heading to Strasbourg uh, to talk with the EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, the possibility of a breakthrough is is certainly being priced in by the market. The pound has been rallying on this news. Uh, but we get a we get a vote tomorrow. And if that fails then potentially we could see further votes throughout the rest of the week. Um, So potentially on Wednesday, you could see lawmakers voting on legislation to to leave the EU at the end of March without a deal. And then maybe later on the week, you get one on not leaving without a deal. uh, And the possible all kinds of possibilities could be put could be put back on the table. We don't know at this point. But the the kind of the fixed point at this stage uh, is that we are going to get a vote tomorrow. As we've already been talking about on the show, the US CPI data out tomorrow kind of big piece of data coming through. Um, Wednesday, I think it's it's US durable goods. I think we get PPI data out as well. Jobless claims uh, on Thursday. Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index as well. It's also worth paying attention to. Friday, US industrial production consumer sentiment uh, is going to be worth paying attention to. We've also had what they kind of call the skinny budget over in the United States today. Remember, we also get the spring statement from the British Chancellor of the Exchequer on Wednesday. So kind of two budget stories that are being uh, being focused on uh, as well in terms of giving us an idea of what is going on. Catherine Greifeld, FX and rates reporter, still with us in New York, as is Luke Carwar, cross assets reporter at Bloomberg News. Catherine, just I, just out of curiosity, I, we've we've had this kind of skinny budget from the president. How useful is that in terms of uh, giving us an idea of what the fiscal picture is going forward for the United States? Because there seems to be so much politics around it, uh, and and the kind of the reading that I've done suggests that that it's likely to be heavily changed. It's a good question. I mean, just looking at the FX market today and Treasuries as well. I mean, it seems that uh, the skinny budget really didn't change anyone's calculus. You know, we know that deficits are going to be growing. Uh, we know we're going to have to see a lot more Treasury issuance. So, you know, I haven't seen anyone really saying, you know, this this is factoring into my calculus of how I view markets going forward. Luke? Uh, pretty much on the, on the same lines. I, I think, you know, it's uh, it's first offer. It's a, you know, it's a lot of bark. 
It has some relatively rosy assumptions baked in, and you know this this isn't going to, I, as Catherine said, change change anyone's mind, uh, change anyone's positions in the short term. However, you know the risk of fiscal consolidation in the U.S. If you think about you know things that are wreaking havoc on economies abroad, Chinese deleveraging, Europeans uh, self-imposed fiscal straitjacket. It, I guess it's something the potential that it's you know a bigger bite on that side is something you have to pay attention to. The reason I so the reason I find this interesting is that that one of the big differences between Europe and the United States at the moment, other than the kind of the chasm between the Bund uh, and the uh, and the Treasury market, it is the fiscal story. I the, the United States has enjoyed growth, and some of that is down definitely to the fact that the U.S. has had a fiscal push. Europe has not. Central banks struggle to generate growth. I, Catherine, it, it strikes me therefore that maybe the market is kind of underplaying. The kind of the fiscal importance of, of what is going on here, like some of some of this this U.S. sort of exceptionalism at the moment in terms of of its growth profile is down to the fiscal story. So why are we not taking this this skinny budget more seriously? I mean, I think you know if we focus on this skinny budget in particular, I mean, I think there's the assumption that it's going to be a drawn out fight over to get it approved. And, you know, there's just so many macro influences going on right now that, you know, to think about this long term story about the fiscal picture. I mean, you know, with the Brexit deal, for example, being voted on tomorrow, I feel like people's attention at this moment is divided. Luke, when you um, when you look across the Atlantic and you think about what is going on, and I get both of your take on this, the Bund is currently trading at six bips. Six bips and and could go negative. Um, I how much attention does that generate in the United States? Not a lot in you know in the United States, but also you know if you asked you know hundred people on the street, even outside Bloomberg, who the Fed chair is, you maybe get like fifteen out of a hundred. I think okay being, within being the market generous. within the, within the, the market within, within the marketplace. I think people like to look at it if for no other reason than when you talk about you know the reflation risk rally, when you talk about all the flows going to EM this year. Still, when you talk about all the hope built in around China. Uh, the boon is one place where you expect to, would also expect to see that hope expressed and the boon yield going up, and that decidedly has not happened this year. So we talk about you know the rate stocks disconnect in the U.S. so much bigger when you think about the global picture and especially the flows picture, and then what the German boon is telling you. In terms of Catherine, in terms of the gravitational effect that it's having at the moment, I it has been if you being short the boon has been a terrible, terrible trade. How big an effect is that having into the Treasury market at the moment? I mean, it just it's interesting because going into this year, a lot of people expected that Treasury yield, bond yield gap to close. And, you know, we're not seeing the big movement that a lot of people expected. So, I mean, it definitely just highlights how relative to the rest of, you know, the developed market, uh, you know, Treasury yields are very high. I mean, we've come back down over the past few months. We've seen, you know, rally in bonds, but, you know, U.S. yields, we've still got, you know, pretty high levels here. And, and even so, when you look at that uh, that hedged U.S. Treasury yield, it's still yeah. about uh, 50 basis points lower than the boon, even when the boon's at six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and it's interesting because I, you would have, I, the, the, the euro should be a lot weaker, Catherine, it, it, on so many metrics, and you've got to kind of wonder why it, why that hasn't happened. If you just took a look at the uh, at the at the yield gap across the Atlantic, I, do you see that changing? Do you see the market refocusing on that? I, is there anything to stop the dollar going higher from here? 
I think at this point, people are really focusing on the speed of the change rather than, you know, the actual gap between the two. Uh, I, f- I feel like, you know, I've been reading a lot more bearish commentary in the last few days, especially after that dovish ECB meeting. So bearing any huge moves in that spread, shrinking or widening, I feel like, uh, you know, markets aren't really factoring in that story. Guys, we will leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, great to have you along for the ride this afternoon. Uh, Luke Carwell and Catherine Greifeld joining us uh, to give us a sense of where these markets are. It's going to rain heavily in tomorrow. Brexit day. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>